The fourweekmba.com is a leading resource of business insights. Top business schools around the world reference to it as the go-to place for business insights. Now it's podcast. Digital business models will break down for you how tech companies make money, what value propositions they offer, why they are successful, and what they're doing next. From Amazon, Google, Facebook, and many others, the Digital Business Models Podcast will give you the top business education you need to understand the digital business world. Whether you're an entrepreneur, an executive, or wanting to be an entrepreneur, the Digital Business Models Podcast is your go-to place for your business education. For today's session, I have with me uh, Walker uh, Diebel, which is an entrepreneur, investor, advisor, and is uh, the author of a book that I loved, which is by Then Build. Thank you for joining me for this conversation, Walker. Gennaro, thanks so much for having me today. Pleasure. So let's get uh, let's start from you. Like, how did you actually uh, get started with uh, um, as a, an acquisition entrepreneur? Yeah. So. Um, <clears throat> I'll tell you what, I had, I had kind of a realization first that, that led up to it. And um, that's the following. I was getting my MBA at uh, Wash U, Washington University in St. Louis. And um, I had, you know, me and a, and a, and a few um, uh, uh, classmates had started a business. Um, you know, we were, we were a finalist in the business plan competition. We were, um, you know, raising capital. We were talking with, um, you know, a very large retailer who wanted to take our product nationwide. And it looked with all certainty that, you know, this was going to work out. And this is back in, you know, 2004. The month that I graduated, um, uh, that day, and I mean like four days before I graduated, the whole thing fell apart in a series of events that, you know, took about uh, four hours, right? And... Um, so it went from I knew exactly what I was building and what I was doing to, you know, probably the only um, graduating MBA from our school who actually was unemployed. And that's what it kind of, it, it kind of dawned on me that the month following was, you know, I felt like I knew I was an entrepreneur, but I also at that moment was an entrepreneur without a company, you know, without a vehicle. And I really didn't have an idea. Like that was my idea, right? So, so it's not like I had something to, to just, you know, start up the next thing or whatever. Um, so, you know, the notion of being an entrepreneur without a company was something that really kind of took hold at that time. I knew that you could buy an existing company. Um, I didn't know how to do it. And what happened was I sort of went out and, uh, you know, freshly minted MBA and, and kind of did something back then that, that, you know, MBAs really didn't do, which was go out and try to buy an existing company. And, you know, I was immediately met with um, a very fragmented industry, a very opaque industry, one where getting quality deal flow was, was time consuming. And, you know, the, the um, uh, I'll just say that the, the quality profile of the, you know, brokers that I was talking to, and they'd call themselves, you know, brokers, intermediaries, advisors, investment bankers, whatever it was, but the, the, the quality, regardless of the title, was absolutely enormous, you know, and um, uh, the quality of the listings and the, and, and the insights of the broker themselves was huge. I ultimately failed my first attempt at buying a company and sort of went corporate. And um, uh, it wasn't until, you know, a couple, in, until a little over a year later that I ended up being successful buying a, buying a business to begin with. 
interesting uh, uh, beginning and you know many many uh, people think that when you actually start a company uh, it's something that uh, you know is going to grow very quickly but in, in many cases when you're starting from scratch it actually you have to give it at least like five ten years to actually build like a, a sustainable business i guess over time um who is uh, really then an acquisition entrepreneur i mean is there a, is there a definition uh, formula or something that um, you can help us with uh, to start as acquisition entrepreneurs yeah it's a, so <clears throat> the name just kind of came to me like like uh the the working it took me about four and a half years to write by then built and and um the name kind of came to me for probably three of the four years for for probably three years that I was writing the name of the book was platform entrepreneurship I knew deep inside me that 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 wouldn't be the ending title because of course as entrepreneurs think of platforms we think of you know tech tech stacks you know or something like facebook or something that we can build on top of so i knew that wouldn't exactly work however in private equity the platform company is that first acquisition that they buy and then they focus on you know growing through acquisition or tuckins whatever it might be after that so you know early on i sort of saw that there was an intersection of you know entrepreneurship and private equity um but kind of at a at, at you know at, at the most approachable level it's really at a micro level right like like um and i was trying to figure out what's the what's the level that's sort of you know mass market attractive uh but also kind of you know um how do i how you know um how do i say it like like attractive to the to those that are achievement driven And it wasn't until I ran into Vern Harnish's um, statistic in Scale Up that, um, you know, 4% of companies in the United States anyway ever exceed a million dollars in revenue. And that to me is um, an extraordinarily small number. I think that everyone was kind of surprised by that statistic. But once, once I started learning about, you know, hey, it, it's really it, the few that make it this far and the selective that make it this far. And then I started to look at what actually drives value in companies, which is, you know, um, the Giselle companies, those that are growing for 20% for four years or more. It started to come together that, you know, there is this very approachable uh, model that no one was talking about. And that's that, you know, if, if, if you're going to go out and put, you know, 20% down on, on your first home, okay, and you took the average price in America, and you compared that to, you know, a, a 10% down Um, SBA loan uh, for a business, um, it's, very, it's very similar numbers that, you know, the average down payment for the house in the United States and buying a, a you know, one of the largest 4% of companies in the United States is actually the same amount of money, which to me was really eye-opening. And, you know, to, I'm going to stop myself from running down the rabbit hole. You know, the, the number one critique I get is that, you know, I, I, I uh, promote high leverage. Uh, we can talk about that if you want, but the point there is only that if your objection is, you know, oh, it must be nice to buy companies. I'm sure you've got to be loaded, you know, rich to do something like that. You actually don't. If that's your objection, the capital is more ready than starting a company. And it, it's far from, from needing, you know, needing to be, you know, generation, have generational wealth in your family or anything like that. Great point. I think probably this is one of the common myths of people that are, are uh, look at, you know, acquiring companies and they think that to acquire company, mm -hmm. you, you need companies, you need a large uh, amount of capital. But as you say, I mean, you can do it with a, with a very, very small uh, amount of capital or actually 
if you know how to do it, uh, you know, and if you have a playbook, you, you actually can do it um, uh, very, uh, in, a, in a very strategic way. But what are other myths surrounding the, the um, uh, acquisition entrepreneurship and why people don't, don't go for it? Uh, the other needs? Like more like myths and beliefs, like wrong uh, beliefs uh, that people have. Ah, yeah. Okay. So um, let's see. Let, well, let me tell you this. I think that, um, you know, there's, there's a very successful, uh, uh, you know, multi-decade broker out there who, you know, basically was the one who coined um, that, you know, 10% of potential uh, buyers of, of businesses don't actually end up pulling the trigger on, on closing something. And, um, you know, let's, you know, I sort of started to think about why that is. And some of it had to do with, you know, my own uh, sort of reality as I started to look for, for companies. And, and um, you know, it also came through working with other partners as we were looking to acquire companies. And then thirdly, um, I, you know, I, I do work as a business broker now for online businesses. And um, it's been just working with my my, my clients and, and buyers of businesses and seeing how they all come together that I sort of came to my own realization. I think that the first thing, the first reason is number one, you know, acquisition, potential buyers, we'll call them potential acquisition entrepreneurs, potential buyers, whatever you want to call them. The number one reason in, in, in my view, why that never ends up working out is because they don't work with a sense of urgency. Okay. They believe that, you know, there's that, that everyone who's selling, let me back up. Everyone who's selling is selling because they know something that is, you know, destructive to the business and they're trying to like unload it really quickly. Okay. Um, you know, nine times out of 10, that's not the case at all. Okay. <laughs> Usually, you know, someone who is, has built something of value, they eventually want to sell it. Right. And so a lot of times, you know, you get the first question from a first time buyer and that's, well, you know, why are they selling? And it's this sort of like, you know, accusatory question, lightly veiled accusatory question. What I would say is um, uh, there, you know, there are some very clear answers to that, like, you know, death, disability, divorce, you know, and when you can answer with something like this, it, make, it really puts the buyers at ease. But, you know, the truth is, is that, you know, if you're an entrepreneur and you start a business and, you know, you start this thing from scratch. It's hard. It's hard work. And then the second year, you're one of the lucky ones, okay? Your business grows, you know, whatever, 200% over the year before. The next year, it grows another 200%. The next year, it grows 100%. The year after that, it grows 50%. The year after that, it grows like 20%. And you're like, well, I don't even know what to do with this anymore, right? It's sort of, it's sort of I've done with it all that I can, and I've sort of run my course. And not only that, but I'm an entrepreneur, so I need to kind of move on and do my next thing. And, you know, it's a great opportunity for an acquisition entrepreneur to come in, um, you know, presumably use a bit of leverage to get an outstanding ROI on it, jump in, take over, you know, and create the business that they want with the goal of taking that business to the next level, all the while getting the ROI of, um, you know, the equity buildup uh, as well. Um, so number one is going to be they put way too much weight on, you know, the reason for selling. It's important, but it, it's certainly not everything. Uh, number two, uh, they work without a sense of urgency. They, they, because of this belief that, you know, the seller is trying to sell me something and I'm like a potential investor, I've seen it over and over again where, um, you know, especially with, and, and I mean no disrespect, but especially with, um, you know, potential baby boomer 
uh, aged buyers. You know, when they get a little gray hair in them, they sort of come in um, and kind of like the, the, the fat cat investor mentality where they'll kind of sit down and say, okay, you know, pitch me your slide deck or whatever. And they almost confuse it like it's some kind of like they're a venture capital or an angel investor and there's some startup coming in and pitching it. It's actually the other way around, right? Like, like when buyers go in, they need to sell the sellers on them as the right choice, right? They need to sell them on, listen, I'm the right CEO for this company. I'm the one that, that is passionate about this that can take it to the next level. Or, you know, I might not be diehard passionate, passionate about it yet. But um, it's got a lot of the elements that I've given a lot of thought to, and this business is of high interest to me, right? So, um, you know, it's it's one of these where uh, they want to be pitched instead of going and selling themselves. That's probably number two. Number three, um, uh, well, sorry, let me pull that around. Number two is working without a sense of urgency. And so what they do is, is they kind of have this lackadaisical approach, and they work without time constraints. And um, if you aren't trying to, you know, be CEO of a company in you know, six months, guess what? It's not going to happen. It takes work, it takes commitment, and it takes hustle. And, you know, if you work without, um, with, without that, those sort of, you know, sense of urgency, then, then the time will just keep rolling. And, and uh, it's, it's very common for a search to end up taking a year and a half or more. And as we know, time kills all deals. So, you know, if you are unemployed for a year and a half, you end up kind of moving on yourself, right? Yep. So, and, you know, this is, I, I think this is very important to emphasize. Actually, we should emphasize it over and over again. And I think it's not just when you're buying company, but, uh, companies, but also uh, in everyday life. For instance, even when you buy a home, the first thing that, you know, the, the, the first thing that comes to mind uh, from you, like the buyer side, is probably why is this person actually trying to sell? And you look at the other person and you, you probably try to think at all the tricks and stuff and, you know, all the things that, uh, you know, all the negative aspects of why the, why the person is selling. But your point is when you get inside the deal and you have to buy a company, you need to um, behave as sort of a salesperson as well. So you need to actually pitch yourself rather than going with this uh, negative uh, mentality. And on your side, what are some of the mistakes to avoid when uh, trying to acquire a business or actually when, actually when you're going through the process of acquiring a business? Yeah. Can we go, can we go back just a minute? Cause you just made a really good point. I'd like to touch on, yeah. which is, you know, it's sort of like the, you know, like, like, you know, um, uh, blowing up the kind of negatives, right? There's a couple things going on. Number one, they're trying to figure out the negatives right away. And that's just a responsible approach. I get it. Right. But um, you know, when you are applying for a job, for example, you're not, you're not going in, you know, looking at the negatives. You're going in and saying, okay, this is what I want to do with my time and my life, right? And there is a time to really focus on the negatives. And it's critical that acquisition entrepreneurs do that. And that's the due diligence period, right? Um, you, you know, you need to understand the business model. You need to understand why it's working. You need to figure out if this is a right fit for you. But um, you know, be patient. The negatives will, 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 you know, will turn up because there is an appropriate time. And that's, that's immediately following the letter of intent. And that would be the time to really drill in and get into the weeds and highlight all the negatives. Right. So I'm not saying to skip over it. I'm just saying, do it at the right time. There's a time and place for everything. Right? Yeah. You're saying bring it to the end rather than to the beginning, at the beginning of, of the, 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 the relationship. So, 
which is what happens usually. So people are very conservative at the beginning rather than do it like at the end. When or the, or, or um, at least after it's after your letter of intent has been agreed to. So in other words, assuming everything you've shown me is true, I intend to buy your business with these terms and X many dollars, right? And then they say, okay, I agree. I like you. You're a good fit. That price works for me. These terms work for me. Let's, okay, let's do this. Once you have that letter of intent in place and it is your intent to buy the company, that's the time where you sort of take the gloves off and get into it and just start looking for, you know, is everything that's been presented to me accurate, right? Is everything true? What, what, you know, where are the, where are the uh, rabbit holes that are showing me, you know, where this whole thing could trip up and, you know, you want to run down those, you know, those rabbit holes or those hallways as, as fast and as detailed as you can so that you can get comfortable with the risk that you're taking. I, when, you know, when that, when the seller owned the business, there were business risks and business challenges every day. And guess what? That's not going to change when you buy it. Right. So a lot of times, you know, buyers will kind of go in and, and, and they're trying to find the risk. And then they're like, Oh, look, you know, if the, you know, if you go in with a fixed mindset and say like, look, this risk that's in your business, you know, you didn't do anything with it. Well, yeah, as entrepreneurs, we've got 10 things we're faced with every single day. And, you know, we try to pick the top two or three. And if something's, you know, hangs out at number 10 long enough, it might never get fixed, right? It might be a risk, but like the bigger risks were all addressed. Okay. And then and, and the buyer's going to do the same thing, you know, when they move in and take over. Yep. So great point. Uh, this is, this is one of the critical mistakes to avoid. So, bring the conservative mindset at the end after the letter of intent. So once, uh, of course, uh, you're going through the due diligence as, you know, at that point, things w will not be uh, reversible anymore. But what are other mistakes to avoid actually when, when acquiring a business? Yep. So I, I think that, um, you know, one of the things that I tried to do with buy then build is, you know, you know, I buy, I've bought seven companies and, you know, that doesn't just, happen. <laughs> it takes, it takes a lot of time. You look at, you know, you, you, you kiss a lot of frogs as they say. Right. And I think that I just learned a lot by going through the process and also, you know, interviewing and talking with, with others that have sort of done something similar. And I try to come up with, okay, what's the framework that, you know, I kind of use and what are sort of some of the mistakes and what would the process look like if we were to build a process around doing around a search, right? And, you know, what I kind of found was this, it, when you walk into, you know, and, and it, when you're a buyer and you walk into an advisor's office and, you know, the first thing they want to know is, you know, okay, what, what industry are you looking for? Okay. You know, how much money do you have? Right. Th those are sort of, you know, if they spend, you know, 90 minutes with you in the first minute, that's what they want to know. Those two things, right? Like, you know, basically how much money do you have or what can you afford and what industry are you looking for? And I'll go put, you know, I either have something on the menu, so to speak, or I'll go find something, okay? And what I've realized is it's really completely backwards. Um, those are the least important things. Um, uh, you might say, what can you afford in, in size being like, well, hold on, Walker. I mean, that's pretty fixed. It's actually not. I mean, if you can, you can, I've seen it. <laughs> People will put deals. I mean, people that are, you know, solidly in the middle market will, you know, get a letter of intent based on being able to pull financing together and turn around and raise capital once they kind of have the deal in hand. You know, as a seller, it's an uncomfortable place to be in and it's not ideal, but it happens all the time, right? There, it, you know, if, if, if you have a business that's generating, pick a big number, like, you know, whatever, 20 million in EBITDA, okay? 
and you are able to get a letter of intent to purchase that business with 20 million in EBITDA, people are going to start lining up. And especially if there's, if, if you've got the management team in place and you're able to retain, to retain them, it's, it's, people are going to line up to make an investment like that. The middle, the private middle market has been the fastest growing wealth builder for decades. I mean, this is, this is a, it's a huge opportunity for private investment. So don't let size limit you quite as much as you know, you might be inclined to right off the bat. The first thing, okay, so, so I'll go in and talk to, um, you know, MBA classes or executive MBA classes and, 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 you know, it's usually, you know, up until recently, this was something that was totally an elective, you know, the acquisition through entrepreneurship classes that have uh, popped up over the last, you know, five, seven years have been fantastic and it's starting to catch on, but it's still very limited. But I'll go in, you know, and say like, okay, you know, you guys are all here optionally. This was, this was your choice. You know, what questions do you have? Like, let me try to figure out, you know, what, what, you know, what, what, you know, what, what it is you came here tonight to learn. Inevitably, I'll always get someone who kind of stands up and it, you know, it's kind of that bell curve, but you always get this one person off, off, you know, standard deviation out that says like, I'm just trying to figure out if I have what it takes to be an entrepreneur, right? You know, you know, I've had it from, you know, the first guy who ever asked me that question was actually an MD, right? He was, he was a medical student and, you know, was, um, was a resident at that time and was, uh, was, was wanting to get into entrepreneurship because he was sort of attracted by the model, but hadn't spent enough time to know if he had sort of what it takes. So for me, you know, there's kind of like two, like if you really get into the psychology behind what makes a successful entrepreneur, ultimately it whittles down to two things. Okay. It, it, it sounds superficial, but like, you can say it like this. It's a smart individual going after a great opportunity. <laughs> so, so the thing is though, is, you know, what makes, you know, what makes a smart individual and what makes a great opportunity? Well, let's talk about the opportunity in a minute, but you know, it makes a smart individual when you really push on, you know, the, the building blocks and what we know today. Sure. It might be something like IQ, but you know, more and more it's turning into, you know, there's evidence around having, just having a growth mindset. In other words, when a challenge pops up, you know, do I look at that and say, I'm the one to solve that problem. I got it. Right. Or, you know, do I start freaking out in the face of adversity and think about how, you know, I got to see in my biology class, you know, back in high school and I might not have what it takes. You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know about that analogy, but <laughs> I think you get the gist of it. And, yeah. um, Carol Dweck, uh, wrote extensively about that. So, Simply having that entrepreneurial mindset is really the first piece. Whereas, you know, a lot of people will go in and talk to their advisor right away. And, you know, they'll leave the first meeting saying, yeah, I can afford a company that's, you know, whatever, a million dollars in revenue. And it's in, you know, the manufacturing industry. They won't know for eight months that they actually aren't even in the right mindset and that they can't mentally pull the trigger because they can't get comfortable. Right. So that's the, that's the most fundamental thing. I've got more, but I want to stop and take a breath and make sure you want to keep going. Yeah, down, down yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's a very interesting point. And of course, uh, an entrepreneur has to be a very opportunistic person, uh, which mm. is able to you know, understand when there is an opportunity, it has to go for it like very, uh, in, a, in a very strong way. And just uh, go back to, uh, going back to, to your point, IQ probably doesn't uh, even matter. As, as a predictor of any kind of success for for uh, for entrepreneur and you you make a great point in in the book um, which um, is very counterintuitive that 
when you start looking for deals, I, I mean, at least this is what I would do as I'm not experienced in acquiring businesses. The first thing that I would do, I would go online. I would look for marketplaces and that's where I would start. But, you know, you make a point that uh, when you have no. to acquire. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So is it, is, it, is it a good move? I mean, why is not a good idea to start actually looking for uh, business to buy uh, on uh, yeah. online places? Yeah. yeah. So two things. There's almost three things I want to point out. See if I can remember them as I'm thinking of them. So, so number one <clears throat> is, um, uh, you know, these sites like, you know, monster.com and careerbuilder.com, um, you know, I know you're in Italy, so I, I, you know, are, are these sites um, active? Where I know you've yep. got comparable sites. You use these as well? Yeah, yeah they're, they're active, yes. So, yeah, so I graduated undergrad in, you know, I don't know, 99, 2000? I don't remember, 2000, I guess. And then um, uh, grad school in 04, and, you know, in between, I was a stockbroker laid off during the tech bust. So I, you know, I, I've looked for jobs in my life. And what I can tell you is that, you know, those sites were the, the places to go to, you know, post and find jobs. I can also tell you that, you know, after hundreds of applications of pers- that I've personally done, as well as, you know, probably hundreds of applications of many individuals in my network, I have never, not once, found anyone who ever got a job on any of these websites, Right. It's sort of like, oh, you know, accounting number three or whatever, or, you know, the big companies that just like dump their, you know, their listings on there and they'll get literally thousands of applications. It's, it's statistically against you, right? When you go to the marketplaces online looking for a business to buy, a couple things are happening here. Number one, um, public marketplaces, in my opinion, they all kind of, you know, um, uh, uh, become become an element of the lowest common denominator. It's sort of, you know, that, that analogy of, you know, everyone, you know, everyone digs ditches according to the slowest person on the team who's digging that ditch. If you know this, you know, this analogy, but it's, um, it, it's one of these where, you know, once you start, like, let me say it like this, if there is junk out there, then for sure it is on the public marketplaces. Okay. As a result, uh, it gets, it tends to get, um, uh, you know, all of the junk will for sure be there. And in my opinion, it kind of also taints the rest of what's on the menu. Okay. The other thing is that you are shopping on a menu. Okay. So it's sort of like, you know, you walk into a Thai restaurant and you sit down, you just know you're hungry and you sit down, you start looking at the menu. Okay. You might not even be in the mood for Thai food. You might be allergic to shellfish, Right. And you order something with shellfish and you eat it and you die. That same thing can happen, right? When, when you're for, you know, when, when you don't understand what all the possibilities are and you don't take the time to understand what it is that you're looking for, right? Um, and, and sort of the third thing is, you know, I encourage all potential acquisition entrepreneurs to get upstream. They've got to get your own deal flow. So much of this, you know, occurs with, you know, if something's on Biz by Cell or even Axial, it's been other places before it's gotten there. That doesn't mean that if it's on there, it is junk or it has been passed over. But like, you know, the th- you know, a lot of brokers will put it out there, you know, on the first day, that's fine. But it's, it becomes really difficult to be able to see what's good and what's junk when you limit yourself only to these, to these uh, public marketplaces. When you get upstream and you prepare and you know the growth opportunity and you come out with your target statement 
and you have one-on-one -on -one meetings with you know, the brokers and advisors and iBankers in your geographic space or in the industry you inevitably decide to look for, what happens is something different. The human element comes together and, you know, I've bought companies because brokers that I have relationships with call and say, Walker, listen, um, I, you know, I know, I know the company that you're running right now and I know geographically where it is. And we just got this new listing. It's, it's packaged up and it's going to be launching um, in 48 hours. I'm going to go ahead and, and let you take a look at it early if you're interested, right? What is it? Then you have this sort of conversation. I've been introduced to companies on Thursday and been under letter of intent to buy it on Monday on two occasions, both times ultimately buying it. Wow. So it just goes to show you, you know, neither of those actually made it to any marketplace. It's just having the relationships and, you know, you know, especially once you bought, once you actually close on your first deal, things really change for you. Things really change because they know you're not Interesting. Yeah. And right now, right now, of course, you have a reputation. So for you, it gets easier to actually have those people calling you up. But what for people that are actually starting now? What what mm -hmm. is the first steps they should take to uh, to master uh, these uh, this process? Oh, it's a fantastic question. So, um, okay, we talked about attitude. The next thing is aptitude. So you know, rather than go out and look for the company, I want you to look internal first. Okay, I, you need to spend some time and understand you know, your aptitude, your skill set, what you're good at, your strengths and weaknesses, okay? In other words, when you buy a company, it's going to be the company plus you. You're the new leader. You're the CEO. What do you bring to the table, okay? Having a clear understanding of that and not just like, you know, oh, I work in pharmaceutical sales. So I know a lot of doctors that buy you know, this type of doctor. So I need to go buy a medical practice that serves these kinds of doctors. It's too, it's too superficial. You can be trained to run anything, right. In terms of, of the process of the business, you need to understand like, Oh, okay. I have strong, you know, interpersonal skills. I I'm process oriented, you know, I'm, I'm goal oriented, understand yourself and what you're good at and, and what you need. Like, for example, you know, I get bored of tears running, you know, operations every day. I love it. I absolutely love it for like, 90 days, 100 days, and then it just becomes, I'm too much of an entrepreneur, I guess. I just get, it, too, it becomes too monotonous, right? So I know that I need that sort of operational excellence to come in from somewhere else, okay? That's, I just know that about me. Know it about yourself, whatever that looks like. The next is action. I like to think about, you know, what do you want? I want you to visualize what you want your life to look like. And the reason why is because entrepreneurs work hard. We work a lot of hours, right? I mean, I, of course, there's this whole four-hour work week model, if that's what you want, you can buy that. It's out there, okay? That's readily available. Or, you know, do I want to build something that has some real meeting, you know, with, with um, you know, do I want to introduce, you know, some disruptive technology to a big customer base? That's out there too. Both completely different models that make your day-to-day -day life look very separate, right? Do I want to go to a physical location and run a manufacturing plant? Do I want to work in a services industry with, a, with you know, a bunch of uh, professionals and, and sell services? It's very different lifestyles, right? I mean, a lot of steak dinners versus, you know, eating it at Burger King over 20 minutes, you know? Um, you got to know that about yourself once you're looking for. The third thing, perhaps the most important, is the growth opportunity that matches your skill set, okay? In Buy Then Build, I talk about what's called the AE matrix. And we, we go into the four value drivers, the four ways that, that an acquisition can, can drive value for you, okay? 
Um, number one, and I'll go through these really fast. <clears throat> number one is, you know, that eternally profitable uh, method. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the guys at Harvard wrote a book called The HBR Guide to Buying a Small Business. They coined that term eternally profitable. <clears throat> and as far as I know, and, and, you know, what they're really looking for is sort of like, if I want to <clears throat> reduce risk, my number one concern is reducing risk rather than growth, <clears throat> excuse me, then I want to buy something that, that, you know, is very unlikely to be disrupted by technology. A couple examples might be, um, you know, like a, like a corporate window washing company. I think that might be their example. Um, there was another couple of private venture capital guys uh, in the New York Times that bought a salt, um, uh, a, sorry, a snowplow company. They plowed snow and did salt. Things like this. Things like, you know, you know. Um, number two is is high growth companies. Um, things like, you know, companies that are just, you know, taking off and growing to the moon and, you know, just needing working capital. You need to jump in and manage the growth. The third being a turnaround where, you know, you buy a company that, you know, has assets, has a lot of potential, but it's being underutilized, maybe falling on hard times and really needs someone with a very specific skill set to jump in and fix it. Um, and then the last one I call is the, uh, the, the, the platform company. And that's where, again, you're using your skill set to jump into the right opportunity for you to, to maximize the growth of that company. So a little, you know, a little more risk, obviously, than, than you know, an eternally profitable company. But it, it, it replaces the risk because I think more often than not, the risk is actually in the entrepreneur rather than the company. And so when an acquisition entrepreneur sort of jumps in with the goal of growing something, you know, being able to have that growth mindset, tackle the growth opportunity, use your skill set to grow the company is the thing that can potentially bring the most value. Interesting. Is there a, actually a deal that you're particularly uh, proud of where you can say, you know, this is how it was supposed to work out and, you know, everything that I've done uh, actually followed the process that I laid down in the book. You know, um, it's kind of funny because I'm, it's almost like you can't say that until you exit. Okay. And in other, in other words, the whole story has to be told, right? The book has to be closed on that particular deal before you can actually say, Oh, Oh, this went, completely according to plan. And one did. Um, I'll tell it to you very, very quickly here. Um, basically, so I bought a book printing company and I did this during a time when the, you know, the, the recession was, was just starting out. Bookstores were going out of business. Apple released the iPad, you know, that the month I bought this company, you know, newspapers were going out of business, bookstores were going out of business. It was a very interesting time you know, you might think I was crazy. What I saw was the following. I said, digital book printing was actually growing at the rate of 30% or was it 38% year over year for four years in a row, right? And we didn't know it then, but what we saw was Amazon moving into their first space, right? And in retrospect, we see it now. Amazon moves into a space and it starts to suffer, right? Back then, you know, it seemed like print was dead, but it was really an Amazon effect. Digital book printing provided a lot of benefits to publishers, um, things like just-in-time inventory management, being able to, you know, pull books that were out of print and print them on, you know, low-run quantities. Let me, let me say, digital book printing is essentially low-run quantities of printed books on, you know, exalted Xerox machines. That's what the product is, right? 
So it also, you know, um, uh, uh, lended itself very well to warehousing and fulfillment. So, you know, basically short run of printed books, uh, warehousing of those books, and then fulfillment to individual places. So I bought a book printing company that had, you know, about 130 to 150 different publishers uh, nationwide. I used the cash flow of the business to, I knocked down a few walls and built a digital book printing facility inside the company. Okay, probably about 12 months after I bought it. Um, I went to market and I started, of course, by selling it to the existing customer base. And, you know, within 24 months, it was, it was making up a, a, almost a quarter of our revenue. Okay. Um, at a time when book, when printing companies were going out of business, 18 months after I put the digital book printing facility in there, we were one of the largest 2% of, of printing companies in the U S and Canada. Right. Um, that's good. You know, that's textbook. Right. Um, the thing is though, is that I hit a ceiling and what I wanted to do was grow through acquisition because in entrepreneurship, we're faced with this all the time. It's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go, you know, pull together a million dollars or whatever, and I'm going to build some kind of infrastructure. What I don't know is can I actually get cost paying customers to commit to that infrastructure that I built, or is it just not going to work out? That's the risk of a startup, right? When I looked at it, I had a lot to lose because I had a company that was generating millions of dollars in revenue. And, it, you know, by reinvesting the cash flow into this very speculative thing, I was actually not only putting other people's money at risk, it was my money now. And it was, it was like the company, like I could, I could take the company down by making, you know, a speculative investment like that, that didn't work out. So I knew that I could acquire the infrastructure cheaper than building it. And I could also value it based on earnings, which meant that it was more affordable. Okay. So it's, it's more affordable and it's proven. So it was a beautiful opportunity. I went in, out and looked at 27 companies and this last one was absolutely perfect. It, it, the company was not for sale. You know, I had recruited a, a buyer's advisor and we we're sort of going to, you know, these companies that I was kind of finding this, this company was absolutely perfect. You know, they, you know, we had whatever 50,000 square feet, they had 10 and a couple of places, et cetera. They had the biggest digital infrastructure that exactly what I want to build. We yeah. talked for about four months. The guy says, listen, I love your vision. We've got to do it. I just want to change one thing. I want to buy you. I was, 30, I was 35 years old in the printing industry. Like that's fine. And it, it just so happened that the whole acquisition entrepreneurship model, you know, does use leverage and all of that leverage kind of shored up like the month prior. And so it was one of these things where I had my first exit all by practicing acquisition entrepreneurship. So it's possible that it's, the best way in certain situations, not only to start as an entrepreneur, but also to grow and eventually exit as well, because all of those activities lead to the outcomes that we ultimately want. Yeah, that's a, that's an incredible story. And let's uh, finish this up with uh, by going back with uh, with a point that we were discussing at the beginning, which is uh, which also connects to the story. When does it really make sense to actually use a leverage uh, on uh, when acquiring a company? Yeah, Gennaro, it's interesting. I think that um, it's the number one criticism I get, right? I mean, I mean, you know, when people are like, oh, yeah, you, you really, you know, really push leverage. It, it, that's not actually true. If you read what I'm saying in there, you know, I even point out private equity has learned two or three times not to put, you know, minimal equity into deals. Um, you know, the private equity market uh, has pretty much figured out that, 
you know, putting between 40 and 60% equity injection into a company will then, um, you know, both increase the ROI, but also um, uh, build in a level of security to, to the acquisition, right? So money is readily available. Um, so the point is, is that if your objection is I can't get money, ah, I'm going to stop you right there. Money's not an issue. It's there. And if you, if the, if the, if the risk truly is in the entrepreneur and you are the entrepreneur for that opportunity, then when you go out and put, you know, 10% cap, you know, equity injection and down payment, whatever you want to call it into a business acquisition and you 90% leverage, and it works out because you build up that 90% leverage over time. You sort of sidestep any, you know, external uh, market conditions that could, you know, come at the wrong time. And you build up that equity, you grow the company and you execute perfectly. You are an absolute genius. It is the number one best ROI of any investment I have ever seen anywhere. But by doing it, you're, you are taking on a lot of risk and, you know, um, uh, so, uh, what I say is, is, is if you just have no capital and you've got nothing to lose and you're a, you're the right fit for the CEO of that business, go ahead and do it. Right. I mean that, you know, so many people are as, as a broker, I can tell you that, you know, probably 90% of the deals I'm closing right now are, you know, for the last year have been people that are, you know, putting 10% down because they like it. The money's, the money's accessible. Um, if you do that, I would advise eat ramen noodles like any entrepreneur, build that equity up right away, right? Look at the private equity industry and understand that these people have, you know, it's like a hundred trillion dollars right now or something in, in liquid capital to invest in acquisitions. And they're only taking, you know, 60% leverage. They probably know what they're doing. Yeah. Cause they've learned it twice. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a very important point. And of course the, 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 the actual point that you make in the book is, uh, you know, many people actually get leverage to buy a house, which doesn't, might not even have any kind of ROI, but then they might not consider this as an option when they could buy, for instance, a business, which can actually give a, a, a huge, massive ROI over time, uh, which is, you it's, know, it's very important. It's a, it's a great point. It's, it's like if I go out and buy a million dollar house, okay, and, you know, and I, and I have to put $200,000 down, okay. I've got 800,000 in debt and where's that principal and interest going to come from? My job, right? If you buy a million dollar company, you can put down 100,000. Not you can put less than the house. And not only that, but now that business is actually paying down the cash flow of that business, you know, pays down that debt and builds up your equity in the company. So I'm not suggesting that people should go out and buy companies instead of houses, but it's kind of an interesting point that maybe some people actually should. Sure. Yeah. Of course. So it's 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 an option that probably they don't even and see see as as available, which is is a great starting uh, point. So thank you very much, uh, you know, for joining me for having joined me for this conversation, Walker. And of course, I suggest everyone uh, that is going to be listening to this uh, uh, conversation and is going to be looking at the blog, of course, to to read uh, Buy Them Build, which is really. Uh, and a critical guide to get started in the uh, you know acquisition entrepreneurship world. Thank you. Gennaro, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the Digital Business Models Podcast, created by 4WeekMBA.com, the leading source of business insights for those wanting to become digital entrepreneurs. Go to 4WeekMBA.com for more top-tier business education.